Well, I knew him like everybody in Palm Beach knew him. I mean, people in Palm Beach knew him. He was a fixture in Palm Beach. Uh, I had a falling out with him a long time ago. I don't think I've spoken to him for 15 years. Uh, I wasn't a fan. I was not, yeah, a long time ago. I'd say maybe 15 years. I was not a fan of his. You know, his hat, make America white again. They want to make sure that people, certain people, are counted. I've done this for several years. I've worked within the Republican Party. I've tried to make changes from within. My colleagues have tried to make changes from within. It hasn't worked. It's not working for anyone. I'm not the only one trying. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Okay, because it's Trump times, the 21st century rape-slave trade is in the news, of course, with slave trafficker, prolific child rapist, and registered sex offender Jeffrey Epstein in the news following his arrest in New York City. Epstein, in his long career, has been enabled by Trump and his circle all throughout it. Superfan Donald Trump, who really loved Epstein's talent for raping children, which he called an eye for the ladies, especially the young ones. Oh, also, Trump sold or traded or something a spa girl at Mar-a-Lago. Her name was Virginia Roberts to Jeffrey Epstein, so he was part of sort of selling women. And that woman, Virginia Roberts, has become one of the best witnesses against Epstein. Trump is also accused of raping a 13-year-old who was one of Epstein's slaves. Trump denies it. Shocker. The Attorney General Bill Barr was son of the headmaster at the famous Dalton School. Dalton gave Jeffrey Epstein, a then street hustler from Coney Island without a college degree, a job teaching teenagers. And that was Epstein's first career break in the preying on children business. Also, Attorney General Bill Barr, he recused himself from Epstein Matters because he worked at Kirkland and Ellis. Now, that's the right-wing law firm in D.C. that represented Epstein throughout his sex slave history. And among the people involved in that are Trumpcast favorite partner Jay Lefkowitz and former Kirkland litigators Alexander Acosta, now U.S. Labor Secretary, and wait for it, Trump toady, Baylor rapist defender, and dismal daft hypocrite Ken Starr. Alex Acosta, the labor secretary who in Florida years ago scored sex slave syndicate capo Epstein a sweetheart deal on his last sex offense trial, he got, among other things, a work release program that let him, Epstein, a convicted sex offender, spend 16 hours in his swank, gleaming work office a day. That's 16 hours a day. That's the whole day. Then I guess he'd pop home for rest in his private, protected wing of the prison and went back to his office to wank and strategize about how to enslave and rape more girls. And then Alan Dershowitz, Harvard eminence Alan Dershowitz, Trump defender, persona non grata on Martha's Vineyard, and great friend of Epstein, who spent endless hours at Epstein's houses and is accused of raping Virginia Roberts six times when she was a teenager. Dershowitz says he did get a massage, but don't worry, it was just from an ugly old Russian person. So I guess it doesn't count. And that's just the Trump crowd. Bill Clinton, Kevin Spacey, Prince Andrew. I don't care about their politics. If they enabled, facilitated, or took advantage of the sex slave trade, no matter who they are, I hope they get their comeuppance. Oh, private note to Hillary Clinton, leave him. My guest today to talk about the world gone mad is Bandy Lee. Dr. Lee is a psychiatrist with Yale University and a specialist in violence prevention programs in prisons and in the community who initiated reforms at Rikers Island. 
Her scholarly work includes a comprehensive textbook on violence. In 2017, she organized a conference on the mental health of Donald Trump at Yale and was the editor of The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, a book of essays that contributed to the debate about Trump's mental stability. And she has issued a further report recently that you might have seen in a Now This News video clip about Donald Trump's mental capacities as evidenced by his actions in the Mueller report. She has fascinating things to say, not only about Trump's own derangement and incapacity, but of cultural derangements and incapacities and dementia, the kind of things that you see in people who believe in QAnon, Pizzagate, anti-vax, and other conspiracy theories. Dr. Lee, welcome to Trumpcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I was very struck when your book about Trump's mental capacities came out and glad that you're keeping the urgent issue of our incapacitated president in the news with this new video you and your team put together after the Mueller report came out, after you read the Mueller report. Yes, the report was particularly poignant in terms of providing us with exactly the kind of information we would have sought to do a mental capacity evaluation. Uh, we, we couldn't resist. In fact, the report was begging for such an evaluation. Mm. Uh, so it, we were fortunate to have a document of such abundant, high-quality information under sworn testimony. We hardly ever get this kind of an opportunity when doing ordinary mental capacity exams. So it was an especially good opportunity. First, I love to hear the Mueller report praised, and especially praised for this, you know, other use that it has. Even if professionals so far couldn't make a decision about obstruction until Bill Barr, there may be other ways to read it in other professions and for other purposes, and you've, you've really shown that. In fact, I would just mention that as a forensic psychiatrist, I'm constantly working with legal professionals, and it's often, you know, it's not unusual to, to share data like this. In fact, we are going to hold a meeting uh, right before Mr. Mueller's testimony to propose questions we would like to ask him oh. because it seems like there were just so many factors that would have raised questions about his incapacity. And one of our questions will be, have you thought about requesting an incapacity uh, mm -hmm. evaluation as, as lawyers often do? So tell me, before we get into more detail about what a capacity evaluation is, tell me a couple more of those questions that you have for Baller. Oh, gosh, uh, there are, <laughs> we have five questions that are actually quite compelling. Uh, it's not just myself, my co-authors and I have put them together, but they uh, will kind of keep them in suspense until oh, okay. our meeting on July 16 on Capitol Hill. Ever since we started this show now years ago, before Trump even got the nomination, we have had people come on the show and say, he's insane. And there's been long conversations about, is he crazy or is he crazy like a fox? You know, does he sort of strategically know what he's doing, but he's playing this madman? Or is he actually erratic and, and insane? And then, of course, the sort of over drinks conversation where everyone says he's a narcissist just like my father or what you have to understand is he's has particular dementia, these kind of diagnoses. What I think is interesting about your report is that it's not a psychological examination as you do of a patient, even someone you're armchair diagnosing. It's not even really a diagnosis, right? This mental capacities exam is something totally different. Tell us why it's different. 
A mental capacity evaluation is a functional exam. So it is often requested when an individual is seems to be unable to fulfill a certain function, such as, for example, they don't seem quite able to be able to draft their own will or hmm. to be able to agree to a medical treatment. So it's usually someone else other than the individual himself or herself mm-hmm. who refers the person. So you're actually doing an evaluation not so much for the individual, but for the party who is concerned about them. Mm-hmm. And that is why lawyers often, lawyers or judges often request capacity evaluations of those who uh, do not seem to understand court proceedings, may need mm. uh, competence to stand trial mm. type of examination. So those are the those would fall under the the uh, the category of uh, capacity evaluation, and we do these all the time. We do these for jobs. Those who are not quite functioning at their job, and the employer is concerned, they may refer the person uh, to to undergo such an examination before they, you know, next return to work. If the person is fighting that requirement, they may have them go through the court to be able to prove that they have the capacity to do the job and then return. So, uh, and then there are military officers, police officers, uh, even uh, things like cleaning up toxic waste where uh, lives may be concerned. Capacity evaluations are required, a requirement for taking the job in the first place. My brother took a psych evaluation to join the LAPD, and he actually, they have a different word other than failed. But anyway, he didn't clear it, partly, I think, on the grounds that he would was too reluctant to use violence. But that capacities exam, I think he had to come to terms with, this is not some, they're not diagnosing schizophrenia manic depression, they're not diagnosing something that would incapacitate you in other fields or as a... Exactly. It might be good to not be a violent person in most fields, but if you're a cop in the LAPD, according to the rules now, you have to be able to use a gun, and that's a particular mental state. So Mm -hmm. tell me about one that's not for the president of the United States or someone holding political office, but for, like you said, someone who works with nuclear waste or a prison guard. I know you've worked with them, too. Yes. What are the capacities it takes to be a a prison guard, which is kind of a counterintuitive profession Mm -hmm. for most of us? Yes. Uh, So uh, the the things that you mentioned, uh, the willingness to use force or uh, to be free of drugs, those are the kinds of things that the department may decide and add on to the minimal incapacity, well, minimal capacity evaluation that medical professionals do. So what my team had tested was not necessarily fitness for the presidential job. The bar may be higher for that. Mm -hmm. What we tested was his ability to make sound, rational, reality-based decisions. Okay. Uh, as as a basic, minimum, essential criterion for being in a position of important decision making. And you even restricted it further. It's so it's not how does he comport himself, at, you know, on during pageantry, or even how does he negotiate with uh, people in Congress, or does he live up to his promises to the people? It's simply this rational decision making, as I understand it, around. Yes. Controlling the nuclear arsenal. 
not only the nuclear arsenal, but important decisions. Okay. Uh, so uh, decisions regarding our relations, uh, foreign relations, okay. for example, that that could be included here. But not decision makings about how to do his hair or the kind of things that we all comment on or even, you know, even his abusive women might not fall into this. Uh, that could fall into that, but we didn't test that specifically. Yes. So what do you ask to try to, I mean, how does evaluation work? If you're not doing talk therapy or, you know, having him mm-hmm. fill out Briggs-Myers tests, whatever, what are you <laughs> looking for and what did you find in the Mueller report? So the most valuable information, in fact, in a functional exam, especially regarding decision-making in one's capacity at work, uh, would be the report from coworkers, close associates, okay. who, have the, who have observed him at work, uh, especially to get um, input from those who are uh, allies and opponents would be important, and we have that. We have extensive information and documentation of those who are directly dealing with him and closely working with him. And that is the primary, most important information we would look for. Uh, A personal interview is helpful because Mm -hmm. we can test uh, on the spot how he deals with information and how he can uh, manipulate and be flexible with the information and whether he understands and appreciates things and, and to directly see if other factors or other psychological, emotional factors are interfering with his uh, rational decision-making. And so a personal interview could be helpful, but it's not the most helpful in this situation, not as helpful as co-workers reports. So which of Trump's co-workers, and there were a lot of rich interviews. And as you say, under oath, you weren't looking at Michael Wolff's book or other biographies or just scuttlebutt or gossip or unnamed sources in in the newspaper. You were looking at people who in their depositions had said, you know, that Trump worded them to hide the evidence that he tried to tried to quash the Mueller investigation or, um, you know, directed him to do something or threatened to fire XYZ or had fired XYZ. Which of those things went to help form your decision that he is didn't pass the, this exam? Well, we looked at all of them. Um, we looked at patterns more so than a specific instance. Okay. One of the reasons why this kind of collateral information is useful is because we can look at patterns over time mm-hmm. rather than a single, you know, even a very impaired individual might be able to keep themselves together for hmm. a half-hour interview or an hour. Uh, yeah. Uh, but they wouldn't be able to maintain that over extended period of time. Uh, so, you know, some examples might be his interactions with Mr. McGann or yes. Mr. Lewandowski. Mm-hmm. But it was really the the overall pattern. There's no part of the report that we left out because because all of it could be informative. So we really combed through the report to find evidence. Uh, First of all, we found abundant evidence that he actually, for each of the criteria that we outlined for mental incapacity, uh, we found that he, uh, there was abundant evidence, not just question, you know, hint of uh, probable incapacity, but rather abundant 
uh, conclusive evidence of uh, incapacity um, or not meeting each of the criteria for capacity. And we also looked for evidence that he might have instances where he uh, would meet the criteria. And the instances really uh, did not um, surface in very in solid ways that we could even question uh, any of the criteria. So, uh, so it was pretty conclusive in terms of each of the criteria uh, that there was far more evidence that he did not meet them than he could. Uh, and uh, our final conclusion also was uh, pretty, pretty decisive in our, in our opinion. Uh, usually, we look at the quantity and quality of data and decide whether or not it's sufficient to draw a conclusion. Right. We decided it was sufficient even without a personal examination. We still offered one and asked that the president get back to us within a given time period. We said three weeks, whether or not he would agree to a personal exam by an independent body. Mm -hmm. In other words, not hired by the White House or under pressure by the White House, but an independent body. And we thought... You know, he should be able to agree to one if he believed himself fit and would like to contest our results. I mean, we didn't share the results at the time, but mm -hmm. that's how we put it, that if he believed himself capable of his duties, then we would hope that he would present for an exam. And there was no, the, his White House staff let us know that he did receive the request, uh, or at least his staff received the request, but there was no response. And so we proceeded with the conclusion, which we felt we were able to draw uh, since the beginning. Now, uh, let me just say that my views are my own, yeah. and uh, they do not represent uh, those of my institutions, except for the World Mental Health Coalition, of which I'm president. So were there any colleagues, or at least did you run a stress test on your findings to sort of entertain a differential diagnosis? I'm mixing metaphors, but, you know, entertain the idea that maybe he does have capacities. So whether or not people would disagree. Like, like is there another way to read? I want to I just get really specific. I'm looking at, at the one of the exchanges that Donald Trump and Corey Lewandowski had that may have informed your decision this is um, Trump asking Lewandowski to give a speech saying there should be no special prosecutor because he's done nothing wrong. And also to basically testify in the press, Lewandowski, that he was on the campaign with Trump for the whole time and he knew there was no Russian involvement. He knew it for a fact. Trump had run the greatest campaign in American history and he had won. And this was, you know, basically Democrats being sore losers and the special prosecutor should be fired. So that is one of the entries in a kind of obstruction case if there were one to be made. But how is that an entry in a case that Trump is mentally incapacitated? So it's really more the pattern mm -hmm. rather than a specific instance, because mm -hmm. a specific instance could be strategy. It could be uh, putting on a, a public face. It could be different things. Mm -hmm. But there has been a persistent pattern of an inability to consider the possibility that there might be a valid decision, mm -hmm. that there could be 
that special counsel's office could be fair, Mm -hmm. that it wouldn't be a witch hunt, for example, or in fact, Mm -hmm. much of what you describe seems to be what he believed was the explanation for Mm. the special counsel's Mm -hmm. investigation. And the inability to consider other possibilities and inability to take in information or advice that would Mm -hmm. uh, counter this belief. So, in other words, his strong Hmm. emotional need to believe in this possibility only and to discredit or to kind of dampen any other explanation, it points to an emotional need rather than a rational strategy. I mean, that adds up. I'm looking at the script of what Trump wanted Lewandowski to say, and it's the usual Trump, the, the sort of diametric reversals. So mm-hmm. instead of saying what politicians often say, which is, you know, I sorely regret that we did have these conversations with Russian nationals. I invite the special counsel to look into this because there's nothing untoward. We'll, we will show him these things and we are definitely want to cooperate with anything. And, you know, I regret that we took these meetings, but it, whatever. The same kind of like, I wasn't a perfect man in my marriage. You know, the sort of acknowledgement mm-hmm. that I'm not a perfect person we made some mistakes and, you know, he sounds like a human. Instead, you see the opposite, the exactly. inability to consider even the possibility uh, that he could have done, made any mistake yeah. or that he is any less than the most perfect, yes. and the most expert at what he's doing. And he would rather give an ex- another explanation than his own error yeah. and create all kinds of of fantasies, in fact, even conspiracy theories in order to explain away even the possibility that he could have any deficiency. And and it's that kind of adamant mm. denial. In mm-hmm. fact, one of the ways we tell apart abnormality from health mm-hmm. is by the level to which they cannot even consider the possibility that there could be a defect. Uh, mm. So the mind kind of works as as a defense mechanism uh, in a way that, uh, so in other words, you actually are what you adamantly refuse and cannot even consider the possibility that you could be. Um, so when someone says they are a stable genius, that is, that is a real cause for concern because uh, a healthy person would not say that. In fact, they always have uh, room for doubt. And especially when a lot of concern comes up, they are able to consider the possibility, uh, even consider consultation, uh, if a lot of people are saying so. And so that's one of the ways in which people who also engage in criminal activity, uh, criminal wrongdoing, uh, they often also develop defenses in that, you know, they, there's no one as innocent as they are. They are only the victim of uh, circumstances and the system. And that can often indicate uh, the possibility that they could engage in criminal activity or activities that violate the rights of others. You were saying earlier, you know, how people would say he's a narcissist just like somebody yes. I know or or that he lies like any other politician. Yes. Well, mental health professionals could offer 
is really the distinction between what is within the wide spectrum of normalcy versus what is abnormal and indicates a symptom of potential disease. Right. And uh, when it exceeds the level, so it's it can seem like a slippery slope, but after uh, after a great deal of training mm-hmm. and matching your experience with research-based documentation over 150 years of seeing these patterns, yeah. mental health professionals can be a pretty good judge as to what is within the range of normal mm-hmm. and what goes into the level of disease. I mean, there are there are some gray zones that we might question or try to get consensus on. But other than those, it's pretty clear in that knowing the disease patterns and being familiar with mm-hmm. disease patterns, mm-hmm. we can start recognizing when it falls when someone's narcissism or someone's level of lying starts going into that area where we would consider it pathological. And so mm -hmm. that distinction would be key because Mm -hmm. whatever is done within normal, uh, the range of normal, would be a healthy choice and be a choice rather than the rigid, uh, disease-driven realm where someone is really not choosing at that point. It may look normal Mm -hmm. and the patient will all the more adamantly insist that it is normal Mm -hmm. and their choice, Right, but you recognize what it is from your own clinical training and experience. I've been thinking lately about sort of black boxing specific charges that politicians get that are incendiary. For instance, you're a racist. And then looking at their responses to see what that actually tells us about them, which could be more useful than deciding racist, not racist. So I'm going to give you three examples, and you can maybe tell me what if which one speaks to the capacity. One of them is Donald Trump, so him you know very well. So uh, Representative Mark Meadows felt that Representative Rashida Tlaib was was implying in one of the one of the um, hearings that he was a racist for trotting out someone from Trump's campaign as evidence that Trump was not a racist. This is the mm-hmm. Michael Cohen hearing. And she said, oh, the fact that you've you know, taken this token black woman is itself a racist trope, right? And Mark Meadows mm-hmm. practically collapsed and referred to Elijah Cummings to certify, because Elijah Cummings is black, that Meadows is indeed not a racist. And then he was, I think, almost in tears describing something to do with his nephew or someone in his family that also he offered as proof he wasn't a racist. So that's him. Joe Biden, Mm -hmm. Kamala Harris accused him not of racism per se, but of collaborating with uh, segregationists and of not supporting busing. He initially said no one's done more, you know, for civil rights than I have. And then he said he admitted that he was had been on the wrong side of things or sort of exaggerated how much he approved of working with segregationists, Mm -hmm. apologized. Mm -hmm. Donald Mm -hmm. Trump has been accused over and over again of being racist, and he has said many, many times a version of this sentence from the beginning of the campaign, I'm the least racist person you'll ever meet in your life. He always adds, like, in your life. So which one of those responses strikes you as pathological? Or are all of them? Are some of them? Are the Meadows and Biden in the range of normal? So clinicians usually, in my experience, do not decide pathological versus normal based on ideology. Right. That's Uh, That's why I wanted to black box the actual question. Like, let's say that each one of them was just accused of stealing cookies. It would Mm -hmm. be the same. 
Right. And and racism could might be considered a cultural disorder, a societal disorder, because it does it is destructive and disease is defined by the harm it brings and the mm-hmm. destruction it brings. Mm. Um, so it can be defined that way. But as for an individual espousing an ideology does not necessarily mean that it's pathological at an individual level. But we would look at the pattern that they bring to their thought process. Uh, Again, uh, usually we don't look at what the person affirms as much as what they deny because Ah. the rigid inability to think of the possibility that one may not be, you know, that one may be a racist Mm -hmm. actually that rigidity is what we look for mm-hmm. as a pathological sign. So in that way, Mark Meadows, Joe Biden, whatever we think of their records on civil rights or what's in their hearts are more or less flexible. That Mark mm-hmm. Meadows knows that, you know, there's a possibility that what he had just done was this racist set piece and he takes pains to rid himself of his guilt. He seeks he sort of seeks absolution from uh Mm-hmm. From the chair, from Elijah Cummings. That shows a great deal of uh, self-observation, and that's something hmm. that's something that people lose when they become uh, when when they become incapacitated or when they become disordered. Got it. And similarly with Joe Biden, with the apologies, there's a, an element of self-awareness. Of he recognizes this as a mistake. He's willing to weigh the evidence. Um, but simply, there's, you know, you've never met a less racist person. I'm the least racist person you'll ever meet in your life. Mm-hmm. I get that. The rigidity, that makes total yes. sense. So you see the distinction between yeah. the two earlier, you know, so far as we can tell, healthy individuals yeah. compared to someone who is unable to do that. Yes. Yeah. That's really interesting. You might look at someone when they're under a certain kind of pressure, like when they've been accused of something yes. or insulted. How do they react to that? Give me one more Apart from that sort of rigidity and also the reality distortion, you know, I never met with any Russians. What about the demonization of other views that, you know, if Mm -hmm. you disagree with me, you're a pedophile or you're ugly or you're uh, on a witch hunt or you're, you know, Mm -hmm. partisan. Well, or or fake news. He can't deal with facts as they are because they are so painful for him. Mm hmm. He, just like the prior traits that he has shown, his inability to consider even the possibility he might have any flaws. And so any news or any reporting, simply restating of facts that might negate that uh, are seen as an affront. And since he always has to be on guard Mm -hmm. that these would be reported or people would be after him, which is how he would experience this. Mm -hmm. He takes on traits of paranoia and and that starts to fall into false beliefs Mm. that one is being persecuted, one is being victimized, and the world is out to get him. And therefore, he needs to fight back, fight for his survival. So it actually makes him a very dangerous person to deal with because uh, what may be a normal interaction could be seen as an assault Mm. that he needs to fight back on. Mm -hmm. And no matter how much he may be the primary perpetrator in other people's eyes, in his experience, he is being victimized and merely defending himself. I remember also in the video, you say susceptibility to false beliefs, paranoia. 
I think you even mentioned conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. And conspiracy theories, I wouldn't think would have like some kind of diagnostic power. You sort of think of them as like some people's bad habits that or some people have fallen under the spell of disinformation and suddenly they're Mm -hmm. anti-vax or, you know, believe that Procter & Gamble has the sign of the beast on it. And Mm -hmm. you don't know quite (laughs) why some people's brains get seized by that. But, you know, I have some superstitious Mm -hmm. beliefs that, you know, and lots of people use hex signs and dowsing rods. But why is a belief in a conspiracy theory about JFK's assassination, say, or the QAnon gibberish, why is that in particular a possible sign of incapacity? Yes, yeah, so you uh, you're absolutely right in that you have to look at it in cultural context. Hmm. A whole culture can believe something incredibly superstitious, but if the whole culture believes it, then uh, the the individual who espouses that belief is actually normal, and and someone who doesn't espouse that belief may be may not be normal. Uh, so you do look at it in cultural context, um, but we we have kind of a bifurcation in the culture, and mm-hmm. so uh, so this false information and conspiracy theories that are out there promoted sometimes even as news mm-hmm. and creating a cultural bubble for a large segment of the population. It could be seen, well, it has to be seen kind of in the context of that. Mm-hmm. How does a person get drawn into those beliefs? Is it the commonly held belief among all their peers? Or are they being drawn into it like being drawn into a cult? It could signal some psychological vulnerabilities. Now, some of the theories that the president has espoused are in fact, rather extreme uh, fringe conspiracy theories. And yeah. so that is an indication that it's it's more of a psycholo- an individual psychological disposition rather than a cultural consensus. But it is very concerning at a cultural level and a societal mm-hmm. level that such a large segment is uh, espousing these beliefs. And this is one of the reasons why I raised... Mr. Trump's presidency as as a consequence mm-hmm. of the worsening of our collective mental health as a society. I mean, I was thinking that, uh, you know, I've thought to myself sometimes that the spread of disinformation is something like the spread of smallpox blank blankets can infected with smallpox mm-hmm. on populations without immunity that, you know, just to put it very schematically, yes. the Russians dropped a lot of incredibly alluring, arousing conspiracy theories and disinformation on us, blanketed social media with us with it. And if you didn't have an immunity to it, for whatever reason, yes, that's right. You got the thing and, you know, sort of are mentally are impaired now by those beliefs and they make life harder. Yes, that's right. It's just like bad air. If you breathe enough of it, you'll develop asthma. Yes. Even if you didn't have the genes for it. Yeah. For example. Yeah. I'm just I'm also surprised that so many people had the vulnerability and I'm not I'm I'm interested culturally in how we got so mm. vulnerable to conspiracies, but then how so many of us who voted against Trump didn't have that vulnerability. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I somehow sometimes I think we were like tender or softened or made more vulnerable or something by digitization, which just overwhelmed people's faculties to process mm-hmm. information and led some of them to fall for weird ideas. Yes. And, and there have been a lot of psychological techniques that have been employed 
either through marketing or even in politics, really, mm-hmm. that uh, use our psychological knowledge to, in fact, destruct events, to make people more impulsive, more emotional, in order to buy uh, things that they do not need or to vote for people who act against their interests. So these are psychological tactics that that we have observed being used in the public sphere for decades. And so what I am recognizing all the more is the importance of our societal duty mm-hmm. as mental health professionals to mm. point out these noxious factors and to arm people against being so vulnerable to yeah. these uh, manipulations, if you will. So it has been going on for a while. This is the way people were conditioned to respond more by emotion and mm. uh, jingoism or what is simple to understand and sounds true rather than critical analytical thinking. And there's a deliberate engineering that has happened for at least a couple decades that I have observed. And that is the reason why I've been concerned about public mental health for quite some time, as I said, for a couple decades. And having the presidency of a mentally impaired individual, mm-hmm. uh, that so many people would have been drawn to such an individual speaks to the poor state of public mental health that we mm-hmm. have had. Mm-hmm. But that's a whole other... No, no, no. It's totally, topic. totally relevant because on the last show uh, with, I don't know if you know, um, Professor Kevin Cruz at Princeton, he teaches history. We were talking about approaches to the history of the last, say, five years that, you know, constant question of did this current flare-up of racism and hatred and violence and misogyny and, you know, systemic violent misogyny, did those things, did we all kind of go crazy at once and become rioters? Like it didn't grow out of the years before it? Or is this a natural progression of something sort of in the American um, spirit? And I think he and I you know, disagreed about this. And we've seen some Republicans, we've had them on the show, who've changed parties and fallen out with the Republican Party. And the question is, was the party hijacked, you know, by people that are seemingly mentally incapacitated? Or did it always have a strain mm-hmm. of mental incapacity? Is that, as a kind of cultural forensic psychiatrist, is that a question you would be interested in? Believe it or not, I did an empirical study on this. Wow. <laughs> All right, please. Um, in fact, a colleague insisted that we study political parties as a factor in violence rates. And violence rates hmm. uh, in a society are a good barometer for a society's state of collective mental health. Mm, mm. And um, I I was initially opposed to it because I didn't want it to appear partisan or uh, political. Uh, we were simply public health. We were doing public health re- research, environmental conditions that would increase or decrease violence. Well, I mean, the, uh, the results turned out to be spectacular. In fact, when one party... Uh, for 110 years of our nation's history, mm-hmm. uh, there would there was a consistent pattern of whenever one party was elected, murder and suicide rates would double, mm. and when the other party was elected, they would have. And this was far beyond any of the effects of economic policies or the wow. rise and fall of GDP uh, changes in GDP. Uh, all economic factors could be 
controlled and there was still an incredibly strong effect of party on rates of violent death. Wow. Uh, there were only two exceptions and two exceptions were more illuminating okay. than, uh, than um, providing exceptions mm -hmm. to the party uh, party factor. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, they were presidencies where either the, uh, the presidency had no way of uh, getting their uh, policies instituted. This was before Obama, by the mm -hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Um, or uh, the the individual decided to adopt uh, the principles and policies of the other party, mm. and uh, mm. those were the only exceptions. So, so in fact, uh, the trend was quite consistent for 110 years. And you might imagine which party. <laughs> I was going to say, Dr. Lee, right? You're leaving a mystery at the center of this. But because you've said you can imagine, I'm going to leave it to Trumpcast listeners to imagine it. I, I've got to look at that study. You know, what somehow, if you can imagine, I feel a little bit optimistic hearing that. Yes, there's every reason for optimism. In fact, violence is the end product of a long process. And we mm -hmm. know how it occurs. We have abundant information yes. on how to prevent it. And it is highly preventable. It also seems to suggest that when the country is moving in, let's call it the wrong direction, ideologically, that it's counteradaptive for the whole society. That in other yes. words, our beautiful system of evolution kind of takes care of that view because you hit a wall. Right. <laughs> yes. Uh, either either you wipe yourselves out or you uh, you decide to make a change. Yes. And, and in fact, there's a reversal of the trend in the sense that um, in the sense of all the movements that have been happening, mm -hmm. which are the impulses of the healthy segment of the population trying to reverse the trend. So that gets activated very much like the body's immune system. Mm. Um, Amazing. The immune system gets activated, you know, the more pathogens there are. In fact, some principles of treatment include adding a bit more of the pathogens so that it activates the immune system. You, you mean bringing in bad political views so that you sort of... No, vaccination. And, oh, vaccination is yes. one example. Yes, you, yes, you're yes. actually adding more, you're adding a bit of the the disease so that your body would... Rally. Reactivated and you know prevent. What? I mean, or I don't. Fight. I don't want to stretch this metaphor too far, but it's almost like what you're describing with Donald Trump, which is he won't let in any of the idea that he might be a racist, so that he has no mm -hmm. immunity to the charge. So he has to just completely reverse it. Like there's no, you know, entertaining ideological views counter to one's own d strengthens your brain, your mm -hmm. mentally. You know. Instead yes. of living in a filter bubble, you know, just asking yes. yourself, might I be wrong here? Is almost like a little homeopathy. <laughs> yes, you know? that's right. Okay, last question. I know you did a divinity degree in addition to your many other degrees and your medical degree. What on, uh, you know, I hesitate to say spiritual, but let's say spiritual, cultural, psychological level, what can we all do to stop ourselves from becoming a kind of brittle, incapacitated Donald Trump? Or one of his supporters? Well, I think one sign of health is flexibility mm -hmm. and diversity. Mm. The ability to embrace many different points of view without experiencing ourselves as falling apart. Mm. 
In fact, fragmentation is often described as uh, a state of disease. Mm. So, so even in an individual, when one is becoming psychologically less healthy, you become, you turn, you're in conflict with yourself and ah. you start engaging in self-defeating or destructive behaviors toward yourself. Mm. Or even when it's against others, it's not really helping yeah. uh, yourself or the overall or even cancer cells that are seem to be thriving and you know just looking at those cells it would be just masterful reproduction and mm -hmm. success it seems but then it destroys the body that allows it to survive yes so not destroying the whole <laughs> yeah yeah and living in harmony within diversity which is actually a strength, it's a biological strength as well as a cultural one, mm -hmm. uh, is a state of health. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so, in fact, our nation has been exemplary of that kind of health for the longest time, the reason mm -hmm. why it has been so successful and became a model for many countries in the world is because we followed the E, plur, uh, e pluribus unum. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I was totally going to say that when you said different points of view without falling apart, that you can yes. keep a certain integrity and coherence to the self while also experiencing yourself as plural somehow. Yes. And in fact, the diversity, the diversity that different ideologies bring are actually yeah. healthy also. Yes. We need... Uh, just as an organism needs preservation as well as innovation to be a living organism, living and growing, mm -hmm. uh, we need conservatism and liberalism and all of that needs to be uh, coexisting mm -hmm. uh, in, in a unified way and that... Uh, and to be helpful to each other. But we, what we have is now division and an inability even to speak to one another. And that is actually a sign of poor health. So I am going to, on that note, encourage listeners to do what I'm about to do, which is call up everything you've ever written and reevaluate all my thoughts, because this <laughs> is just as fascinating as it gets and really goes to the heart of the questions that have driven this show from the beginning, both about our culture and about the president himself. Do you think there's a 25th Amendment uh, exercise anywhere in the future? And is that what you would advocate? Uh, I don't advocate for any particular political solution because mm -hmm. that's not my area of expertise. Yes. But I can tell you I am speaking with some scholars of the 25th Amendment, mm. in fact, the drafter himself, to try to uh, figure out what the level of collaboration could be in the future so that it's not a useless amendment, as some people have put it. I really, I mean, I hope after you two have have, have talked that you will come, you and perhaps the drafter will come back on the show because um, that's a conversation I think we all want to hear about and, and have ourselves. What are the remedies here if we have an, an, an incapacitated president um, and a cabinet unwilling to use the amendment? Yes. Yes. When when society itself is showing a lot of signs of disease and when we have more than one incapacitated individual, it seems, uh, in fact, um, our mental health organization that we formed because of this concern yeah. has a working group to create an expert panel hmm. to be able to assess fitness for duty of all presidential and vice presidential candidates. And when I mention it in public, 
often the question is, uh, what about Congress members? Mm. (laughs) What about Supreme Court justices? Mm -hmm. And we are seeing that it's possible that an incapacitated president would be drawn to and appoint an incapacitated justice, which is what we warned against Mm -hmm. when the last justice was appointed. And lo and behold, there were a lot of controversies during the nomination, during the appointment. And so all of these things are interconnected. I'm I am bringing in my public health background here, yeah. which also um, might have to do with my divinity degree as well, since I think of things in as a whole. And, yeah. and the divinity degree was to try to complement my medical education to expand into other areas to be able to consider the full spectrum of human experience. Mm -hmm. But let me just bring you and the audience back to the immediate urgent problem Mm -hmm. of a person who has not demonstrated mental capacity having uh, being in charge of the nuclear arsenals and war-making powers. That is our current Mm -hmm. immediate urgency, and that's why I've been calling attention to that issue. And that issue alone... Uh, before we can address anything else, we will have a live streamed town hall mm-hmm. on our mental health analysis of the Mueller report, as well as the five questions that we would like to ask Mr. Mueller mm-hmm. if we could. Mm-hmm. This will be on July 16th, and people can find out more at dangerouscase.org. Dangerouscase.org. It has an enormous number of resources, including lawmakers to reach out to, letters to read, and also resources for refugees and asylum seekers who've been affected by an incapacitated president and his dangerous policies. My guest has been Bandy Lee. She's a psychiatrist at Yale University. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Lee. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That's it for today's show. So what'd you think? Talk to us. We're on Twitter. We're just sitting on the dock of the Twitter bay. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And don't stop there. Go over to slate.com slash Trumpcast plus right now and become a Slate Plus member. It's your day today. Just carpe Slate Plus. Plus, members get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free for only $35 for the first year. That's seashells and sand a day. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show is produced by the always patient Melissa Kaplan with help from the equally patient Merritt Jacob. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.